joining us once again for an episode of the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and for this episode, we're going to be discussing the 1983 adventure shooter arcade classic produced and released by Gottlieb. We're going to be tackling Crawl. For those of you who've been kind enough to follow us for over 50 episodes now, I'm sure that Krull being the subject of our episode might have made you scratch your head a little. It seems to me, judging from how players at the Arcadia Retrocade reacted to the game, that you either immediately loved the game or had a tendency to give it a shot, then just walk away. I suppose the truth of the matter is, is that it helps a little to have seen the 1983 movie that the game is based on. A film I will add that I was blown away by when it was released to the theaters back on July 29th of 83. This really was a fantastic time for fans of sword and sorcery films. You had both Dragon Slayer and Excalibur in 81, with the Beastmaster, Conan the Barbarian, The Flight of Dragons, and The Sword and the Sorcerer in 82. With 83, besides Krull, you also had Deathstalker and Ralph Bakshi's animated epic Fire and Ice. For a very, very long time, my games of Frisbee with the neighborhood kids at my grandparents were spent alternating between acting out identity disc battles from Tron or scenes from Krull. As a matter of fact, seeing Krull at a matinee with my grandmother and my cousins Brandon and Ashley almost got us killed on the way home. But perhaps that story is best saved for when I talk about the movie on a future pop culture retrorama episode. Beyond our universe. It is the story of a powerful mystical weapon buried for eons. Of a prince who must learn how to use it. Do not use it until you need it. Well, how I know where? You will know. To rescue his love from the clutches of the beast. I shall be your king. It is the story of a band of rogues. Thieves, bandits, fighters, and brawlers. Those are the kind of men I need. Of a cycle and a change. Joining forces to battle an unearthly enemy for the life of their princess and the freedom of their world. A world light years beyond your imagination. A world called Crawl. Rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. Crawl, which I have read online, was supposedly released in March of 83 as an attempt to drum up business for the then-upcoming film, was a game that was sadly never found in any of the arcades I frequented back in my youth. That isn't to say that I never came across it, however. As I remember it, it was a little after that near-fatal incident of seeing Krull that I saw the arcade machine for the first time. My grandparents took me along for a week's stay with my cousins, and while visiting their local mall one night, which I have to say blew my mind as it was two stories, there was an Aladdin's castle. We were riding up the escalator, Brandon and myself just talking about the usual stuff, Star Wars. 
when, as we reached the top, I laid eyes on the arcade. This was the first and only time I saw an Aladdin's castle. Although I knew of the arcade chain thanks to magazine advertisements and articles in the likes of Joystick and electronic fun with computer and games. Perhaps due to the fact that I was used to at least visiting games people play once a week at this point, I assumed that we were headed to the arcade. I didn't exactly take off at a sprint, but I remember seeing right in the center of the entrance to the very busy arcade was a crawl cabinet, with a large red arrow pointing down at it saying it was a new release. I could make out the beautiful side art, an almost photorealistic painting of Prince Colwyn flinging his magical weapon, the glaive, with the Princess Lysa and the dreaded alien warlord known as the Beast behind him. Speaking of the main villain of the game, above the bezel were the blazing eyes of the beast. The red and orange glow connected to almost hieroglyphic symbols that traveled down from the inner sides of the arcade cabinet to the control panel itself. It was a pretty fantastic design. It certainly caught my eye. I was about halfway to the arcade when my grandfather grabbed me by the arm and firmly guided me away to where the rest of our family was standing, while also letting me know that he had no intentions of watching me waste my money on video games. So as we walked away, I spent my time talking with Brandon about what I knew of the Crawl game, which I had seen in action thanks to the Starcade TV series, and yet again to some of those video game magazines of my youth. So it was, I had to imagine what it would be like to deposit my quarters or tokens into the machine in an attempt to thwart the beast and his deadly slayers. I would not get a chance to play Crawl that night or anywhere until Shay Mathis, the owner and grand poobah of the Arcadia Retrocade, managed to get his hands on a cabinet. I want to say it was three years ago? For the longest time, Crawl was kept in the party room. Honestly, I think because Shay enjoyed it being a little secret, so to speak. Plus, after hours, it was always fun to take the Laserdisc or VHS of the film and play it in the party room, all the while doing our best, along with some of the Arcadian kids, to get a high enough score for our initials to be included in the Roll of Kings, the Kroll Elite high score table. At the time of the arcade temporarily closing its doors due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it had a spot in the adventure row of arcade classics, next to the likes of Magic Sword. Golden Axe, as well as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Krull was produced and released by Gottlieb, which was founded all the way back in 1927 by Dave Gottlieb. The company is probably, and rightfully so, known for having produced pinball tables. Just a few of the tables they produced include The Incredible Hulk, Buck Rogers, Black Hole, Rocky, Caveman, which was a combination pinball and video game table, Super Mario Brothers, Street Fighter 2, Shack Attack, and Freddy, A Nightmare on Elm Street. In fact, a few of those pinball tables are located at the Pinpoint Pinball Bar here in Northwest Arkansas. I featured a few of them on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. You might recall that Bo Counts, the owner and manager of Pinpoint, was one of Arcadia's technicians for a couple of years. Pinpoint is a fantastic place that is obviously suffering from this pandemic at the moment too. Make sure to check them out on Facebook. It's a great place to say the very least. And I hope in the near future I can step up to the likes of Monster Bash or Shack Attack again. Back on subject, while Gottlieb started off with manufacturing pinball tables, with the success of arcade games, the company, which had been bought by Columbia Pictures in 1976, decided to toss their hat into the arcade game ring, licensing such games as No Man's Land from Universal in 1980, New York, New York from Sigma Enterprises the following year, then in 1982, 
they produced both Qbert and Reactor, the latter by the late and great Tim Skelly, who I talked about on the Star Castle episode. In 83, Gottlieb released Crawl and Juno First, which was licensed by Konami. In addition to the Laserdisc game Mach 3, that last title was a game released under the Milestar Electronics brand. You see, in 1983, Coca-Cola renamed the company Milestar after they had purchased Columbia Pictures. This change lasted until 1984, when Gottlieb's assets were purchased by Gilbert G. Pollock and changed to Premier Technology. Although, as far as I can tell, the arcade games and tables that were released after that still featured the Gottlieb name on the marquees and back glasses. As I understand it, the tie-in to the Pamela Anderson comic book film adaptation of Barbed Wire was the last table manufactured by Gottlieb in 1996. Still, the company has quite the legacy, with over 500 pinball tables produced. One of them was the 1983 Krull Table, that, while making it to the prototype stage, I'm afraid to say only 10 were produced, but it was never given the green light to go into widespread manufacturing. The Kroll arcade game, however, judging from video game magazines of the day, appeared to make a dent when it was originally released, at the very least ranking as the seventh highest out of the top 10 earning machines when it debuted nationwide. In fact, the earnings of the game were featured in one of the flyers that Gottlieb sent out to distributors of the day claiming that in Atlanta, Georgia, it took the top spot and performed better than Atari's pole position, William's Sinistar, and Konami's Time Pilot. It also took the top position in Montreal, beating out Congo Bongo and Millipede. In Chicago, it ranked second, just behind pole position, but earning more than Sinistar once again, as well as Arabian and Xevious. The flyer pointed out to arcade operators that Kroll managed to earn an average of $211 every week for 41 weeks. So, I guess not too bad of an investment. Kroll was designed and programmed by both Matt Householder and Chris Krubel. Online, I read they had 10 months to get the game out. Once Gottlieb had secured the licensing's right to the film, Chris Krubel would go on to work on one of the unreleased arcade games for the company, a 1984 title called TYLZ, which looks a little like Qbert before moving on to Midway, having a hand in 1996's War Gods, a fighting game I was unaware of until I stumbled across a video of it earlier this year. In addition, in that same year, he worked on Atari's Mace, The Dark Age, and Wayne Gretzky's 3D Hockey. It appears that Krull is the only arcade game that Matt Householder worked on at Gottlieb, but he would also join Atari, working on the cancelled Moon Patrol title port for the ColecoVision, before going on to join Epix, where he produced the popular Winter Games, along with creating and producing California games. In 1996, he would join with Blizzard North, and work on a little game called Diablo, before producing and even providing most of the dialogue in the insanely popular Diablo 2. Stay a while and listen. It was Jeff Lee, the co-creator of 1982's Qbert, that helped with the graphic design for Crawl. In fact, I found a 2003 interview on Good Deal Games where he mentions that his contribution to Crawl was, quote, just the artwork. Matt Householder and Chris Grabell were given the assignment and they designed the gameplay, the racks, and wrote the code. As always, we were constrained by memory limitations. I believe I had a different background set available for each scene, but only one foreground set, so the hero and some bad guys get reused. 
but some sprites, like the boulders and the beast, only appear in certain racks." End quote. I will talk a bit more about Jeff Lee on next week's episode, which is probably revealing my hand on the subject of the next podcast. I will be sure to include a link to that interview with Good Deal Games on this podcast article on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. David D. Thiel was responsible for the sound effects and music, which includes a brief clip of the fantastic James Horner soundtrack featured in the startup theme. Thiel is no stranger to music for video games and pinball tables, providing effects for the likes of Reactor, Time Killers, and the Indiana Jones table to name a few. That memorable arcade cabinet artwork that I mentioned caught my eye was courtesy of Terry Dorzov, who also worked on the environmental cabinets for Mach 3, the Caveman, and Black Hole pinball tables, and Qbert's Cubes as well. Crawl is a twin-stick arcade game that tasks one to two players taking alternate turns of guiding Prince Colwyn by way of an eight-way joystick, controlled with a left-handed stick, allowing movement to the right and left, up and down, and diagonally in those directions. Crawl is made up of five different stages, a little like the mini-games in Midway's Tron, although in this case the player isn't allowed to pick which stage to tackle next. The game does an admirable job, though, actually of following the plot of the film itself. For example, in the first stage, the player must traverse an avalanche of boulders upon a mountainside in an attempt to collect the five pieces scattered about that will form the glaive. While in the movie, Prince Colwyn locates the lost weapon in a cave, being a video game, it makes it more exciting to have to craft the weapon by having the players guide the prince over them, right? The glaive pieces are worth a thousand points each, although it is more important that you have to pick up all five to advance to the next stage. When I say the player must make it through an avalanche of boulders, I'm talking about 40 or 50 of them all on the screen, all tumbling down the mountainside in various sizes and speed. In fact, if you want to earn some extra points in an attempt to gain an extra man, this mountain stage, especially in the first few go-arounds, is a good way to rack up those points. A player, though, must place Prince Cohen a couple of steps in front of a boulder. The trick, however, is to keep Colwyn near enough to earn those danger points, but able to get out of the way if the boulder suddenly picks up speed, which it will do the longer you remain on the stage. Even with the first go-through, you can't be too lax. The player quite often will find they have to run back down the mountainside in an effort to find a clear path to the next piece of the glaive, especially ones near the very top. After clearing the fifth stage of the game, Krull will begin on the mountain stage again, obviously at a higher difficulty. I should also mention the location of the glaive pieces appear randomly. Naturally, if Prince Cohen makes contact with a boulder, the player will lose one of their extra lives. As the goal of the first stage is to collect the five pieces of the glaive, the second joystick is not used. Beginning in stage two, the swamp stage, players will be allowed to hurl up to four glaives, up, down, right, and left, and diagonally in those directions, in an attempt to ward off the armies of the beast, known as the Slayers all the while running around the screen trying to save as many of the members of your motley band of fighters as you can, from either the sharp needle-like projectiles the Slayers fire off, or just being taken out by the enemies themselves. No easy task if I'm being completely honest. At the very least, it only takes one hit from the glaive to dispatch a Slayer. 
Furthermore, like in the movie, the glaive will return to Prince Colwyn's hand after traveling a certain distance, or making contact with an enemy or the edge of the screen. It's best to not just hurl all four of the glaives willy-nilly, especially in the later stages. No matter how satisfying the death cries of the Slayers can be, there are seven fighters in the swamp stage, and they are kind of situated in the edges of the screen as the stage begins. And it does seem to me that they appear to head to Prince Colwyn, who starts off in the middle of the bottom screen. I was very surprised to learn that if they come across a slayer in their path, they will attempt to defend themselves from the enemy. Engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat, they can take out the slayers themselves. As I understand it, Colwyn's fighters can be touched up to three times, by either a slayer or their spear shots, before they perish themselves. I say up to, as I'm positive that sometimes it only takes one hit for the fighter to fall. Of course, it only takes a touch or a shot from the slayers to take out Prince Colwyn. Saving a fighter by guiding Colwyn into them will earn a player 1,000 points. Failing to save one of the seven, though, and you will hear their anguished cries. It is actually kind of important in regards to score that you save as many fighters as possible. This comes into play not on the swamp stage, but in the third and the fifth stage. More on that in just a bit. As this stage represents the swamp scene in the film, there are quagmires scattered about the screen. While it won't cost the player an extra life, it will severely slow down Colwyn's movements if you try to cross them. Not so good if you're trying to dodge the fire of the Slayers themselves. For what it might be worth, each of the Slayers taken out will earn you 100 points each. The stage is completed after the player has defeated the last of the enemies. And I've read online, once you have rescued or lost the last fighter, the Slayers will stop emerging from the swampy ground. Bear in mind that they will naturally speed up as you dispatch more and more of them. Stage 3 is the Canyon Stage, or I've also seen it called the Fortress Stage, as the hexagon that will appear traveling across the screen is supposedly the entrance to the Black Fortress of the Beast. Remember how I said in the Swamp Stage that your fighters will at least attempt to get you? Yeah, apparently the ambush in the canyons by the Slayers have set them to flight, because they just start running in all directions, into harm's way of the enemy, and from the player at times. There will only be as many fighters as you rescued from the previous stage. The screen features four kind of alcoves in the top and bottoms of the screen, with the middle filled with rocky outcroppings that are far too easy to get hung up upon while the player is guiding Prince Colwyn to a fighter, or worse yet, they block your throne glaives. Some good news is that entrance to the Black Fortress will at least spawn near your location. So once you've rescued a fighter, you can touch the flashing hexagon and they are teleported to safety, earning you 1,000 points for each fighter rescued. You will, of course, earn yourself 100 points for each slayer you manage to dispatch. And in addition, after rescuing the last fighter, any slayers that were on the screen will be taken out, and you will earn 100 points for each of those too. Stage 4 takes place at the entrance of the Black Fortress, and looks like a giant hexagon made up of four walls. They will flash blue, silver, gray, and black. If the player throws a glaive into any wall that isn't black-hued, it will become momentarily stuck. Hitting it when it switches to black, however, will destroy said wall. The first wall is worth 1,000 points, and then 2,000, 3,000, and 4,000 for the last wall. 
which allows the fighters that the players save to appear. Obviously, just shooting the hexagonal walls isn't the player's only obstacle. Slayers appear in great number, and continue to pop up from the ground until the stage is cleared. Keeping your attacks on the center wall, you can carve out sort of a safe spot from the diagonal shots of the Slayers, letting you deal with only the enemies that are directly below you or come too close. In addition, you will of course get 100 points for each Slayer you defeat. And like with Stage 3, all Slayers that remain are destroyed at the end of the stage, earning you 100 points for each of those. At last, the player has reached the Lair of the Beast with Stage 5. At the top of the screen, the fair Princess Lysa is held captive. Standing between Prince Colwyn and his intended bride is the Beast. The grey-hued foe is a little larger, and as the stage begins, the player is located at the bottom of the screen. Immediately, the beast will begin to walk towards Prince Colwyn, hurling fireballs at the player. These fireballs can be dispatched by a well-placed shot from a glaive, earning you 100 points times however many fireballs are currently on the screen. But this enemy fire also bounces when they reach the edges of the lair, annoyingly accurate at hitting Prince Colwyn in the back if he isn't careful. You can launch your glaives at the beast, but it merely makes him roar in anger. To be fair, hitting the beast with a glaive will net you 100 points, and it looks like it stuns him for like a second. But the only goal for the player in this case is to get around the beast and avoid getting blasted by those fireballs. Once he has reached Princess Lysa, Colwyn's army swarms in from the sides and chases off the beast. And for each fighter you saved, you naturally earn 1,000 points. You are also treated to a victory tune from the Kroll soundtrack, before the player finds themselves on stage 1 once again. I really do think that Kroll is a fantastic game, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's a little tough. Even the first round of those five stages can end in a game over, although particularly I think that the third and fifth stages of the game are the toughest. Thanks to a couple of spots online, I found an interesting trick that Gary Burton will have to attempt at the arcade. Apparently, with the machine turned off after you open the coin door and press and hold down the select button within, you flip on the power switch. Then, 64 black and white images of J.R. Bob Dobbs' heads will begin to float across the screen. I'm Cubert, and I've got all the right moves. I've got the legs, too. First an arcade game, now my own home video game. I'm ready for anything. Staying away from creeps like Ugg and Coily takes a quick mind and lots of fancy footwork. The longer I hop around, the more they're out to get me. Ugh! When they said fame would go to my head, they weren't kidding. Now for all popular systems. Not easy being Hubert, but it's fun. There's a sensation in playing the reactor video game that people really get into. Good luck. Suddenly you're bombarded by atomic particles. You bounce them against the reactor's control wall. And as the reactor core expands, you face heavier particles and new dangers culminating in the dreaded vortex. Your turn. Me? Reactor. Reactor from Parker Brothers. The ones to beat. Speaking of Gary Burton, I am afraid that he was unable to join us for this episode. Much like with last week's show, he is wisely devoting all his time to helping Shay get the arcade up and running once again. 
At the very least, I can pass along the information that today he was able to get Tecmo's 1986 action-adventure platformer Rygar back up and running. Friends, especially those of you listeners who are local or who have visited the Arcadia Retrocade, I cannot stress enough how much work Shay Mathis, Gary Burton, and others are putting into the place. And please, make sure to thank them when you get to see them in person. Now then, Crow was ported to only the Atari 2600. Although, I have heard that a 5200 version was being worked on. Perhaps the 1983 game crashed caused Atari to pull the plug on it. To speak more about the Atari 2600 version of the game is Earl Green. Crawl for the Atari 2600 has the unique distinction of having absolutely nothing to do with the arcade game of the same name. Atari was able to snag the license for home video games, but made an original game so it wouldn't also have to license the gameplay from Gottlieb. The 2600 cartridge was programmed by Jerome Domerat and Dave Staugus, and it has basically four different stages. There is the wedding stage, where you are trying to fight the guards off of the princess, although eventually they will get past you, they will grab her. I mean, it's not much of a movie or a game if they don't get to do that. But you can fight them off for a good long time if you have really good skills at dodging the projectiles that they are chucking at you. The second stage is a ride across the countryside on horseback, at which point, if you act very quickly, you may have the opportunity to pick up your first glaive. Notice I said first, because in the game you can have more than one. At the end of that stage, you reach the spider web, where you must either walk through, which slows you down, or jump over, which is very preferable, the spider web, which in some difficulty levels actually moves. At the beginner's level, the web does not move. From the regular skill level onward, the web moves sometimes a lot, and that can really snag you. The spider is also there, and the spider will eat you if it comes in contact with you. Now, once you come in contact with the cocoon at the upper center of the screen in the spider web stage, a flashing symbol will point you toward the escape route out of the spider's web, at which point you're back on horseback fighting back toward your next encounter. And at this point, you also have an opportunity to pick up extra glaives, though I've never had more than two on hand at a time. And that's a problem, because the next stage is really the last stage of the game. It's the castle. The castle rises up out of the ground. It's quite an impressive spectacle as far as 2600 graphics go, really. And once you're in the castle, you are facing off against the beast, and you're trying to use the glaive to bash away at the cave holding the princess. Of of course, if you manage to bash enough of a hole that the princess can escape, she will come to you and bring you a fireball that you can then chuck at the beast and destroy it. At least that's what the manual says. I have never gotten past this stage even once. I have never beaten the beast, not even on the beginner level. Very much like my memory of the arcade game, I remember the arcade game as being pretty tough. The Atari 2600 crawl game is really unforgiving. Even even at the beginner's difficulty level, I have great difficulty getting anywhere with the game. The graphics are nice, the sound is minimal, the uh, repeating high-pitched sound in the spiderweb stage is enough to drive anyone bonkers. So uh, maybe play this with the volume down if you can find a copy. It's not impossible to find, but it's also not the easiest to find 2600 cartridge 
either. So there you have it, Crawl for the Atari 2600. Man, I probably could have talked a lot longer about, oh, the action figures that were released by Knickerbocker, or even the soundtrack, this great James Horner soundtrack, which, of course, the 2600 cartridge makes absolutely no use of. The only music in the 2600 game is the traditional wedding march, and, you know, absolutely nothing to do with the movie's music at all. So maybe at some point, I'll come back and talk about the soundtrack. The arcade is lucky enough that Shay Mathis was able to pick up a copy of Crawl for the Atari 2600. And I can tell you that Earl is right. It's not an easy game, even at the beginner level. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you're enjoying this second season of the podcast. I realize I'm no expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes. And I promise I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is now available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify and Stitcher. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook. Or, for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. Earl Green is a frequent contributor to the Pop Culture Retrorama site, as well as being a very good friend to the arcade, having donated most of his collection of home console games and more. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. Gary Burton, of course, frequently shares photographs from the work he's doing at the arcade, uploading them on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. In addition, from time to time, he contributes articles to the pop culture Retrorama site. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook. Or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. You can also often find me posting things on my Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore. Naturally, I want to thank The Retroist. For over a decade, The Retroist provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without The Retroist support. Have a token on me as you listen to a clip of the subject for next week's show. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Gottlieb, Exidy, Atari, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games, TV programs, and ads are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only and are not intended to infringe. You've been with us for a long way now. Since the beginning. When I learned that the old one had come down, I knew that the time had come. Join us then. All men need company. Yes, all men. End of line.